This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. Welcome to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. Hi, I'm Jamie Busson. I'm a former commercial litigator who used to weigh 242 pounds. When I was 38 years old, I lost over 50 pounds through a regimen of exercise and better nutrition. It took me a year to reach my goal, but I thought if a type A personality like me could do it, really anybody can. I'm still asking questions and learning about what it means to live a healthy lifestyle. Please join me on this continuing journey. Today, we'll learn about CBD for skin care with Umar Syed. We'll find out about medical innovation and collaboration with Jefferson T. and Aaron Liebtag. We'll discover how to understand incels with Carlisle Jansen. And lastly, we'll discuss why you should add to your routine vaccinations with Dr. Christine Palme. Before we get to that, here's your tonic quick shot of healthy headlines. Here's another reason to get your flu shot. Researchers at the University of Texas found that people who received at least one influenza vaccine were 40% less likely than their non-vaccinated peers to develop Alzheimer's disease over the course of four years. Did you ever wonder why you became friends with someone? Researchers have found that people may have a tendency to form friendships with individuals who have similar body odor. The researchers were even able to predict the quality of social interactions between complete strangers by first smelling them with a device known as an electronic nose or e-nose. These findings suggest that the sense of smell may play a larger role in human social interactions than previously thought. According to the American Academy of Neurology, women who have gone through menopause may have more of a brain biomarker called white matter hyperintensities than premenopausal women or men of the same age. White matter hyperintensities are tiny lesions visible on brain scans that become more common with age or with uncontrolled high blood pressure. These brain biomarkers have been linked in some studies to increased risk of stroke, Alzheimer's disease, and cognitive decline. That was your tonic quick shot. I'll be joined by Umar Syed in a moment. But first, a little bit of business. Suffering with pain or arthritis? Having trouble sleeping due to stress and anxiety? Understand the benefits of medical cannabis science. Optican CB4 relief soft gels are formulated with patented Bezosorb pharmaceutical technology and are clinically proven to deliver four and a half times more CBD into your bloodstream three times faster than conventional CBD capsules. That's reliable relief in a nutshell and in an Optican soft gel. Talk to your doctor or pharmacist and sign up at opticanwith2ends.ca. Umar Sayed is the president of medical division Optican at Heritage Cannabis. He was the CEO of Optican Inc., previous senior VP of corporate development at MedRelief Corp. He has 20 plus years of leadership in the pharmaceutical and medical cannabis industries, including international corporate strategy for PharmaScience Canada. He's part of the founding team of the first medical cannabis product development company in Canada in 2004, Synapsis Therapeutics, that innovated film strip drug delivery technology for Parkinson's disease. Welcome back to the show, Omar. How are you? Great to be here. Thank you. So amongst all of the personal problems that I have, which we rehash on the show repeatedly and repeatedly, I've actually had eczema 
since I've been a child, and it's manifested like two different kinds. I get the eczema that comes with too much exposure to the sun, and I have the eczema that is related to seasonal allergies. And, you know, the one with the sun sort of cleared up as I went through puberty, but the other one has remained with me and comes off and on. And I think a lot of Canadians suffer from that in psoriasis, right? Including me. Oh, uh, you as well. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I, I get that on my hands and my ankles uh, more seasonally, as you just mentioned. Yeah. So it's a real problem, right? Because, you know, in some ways it can be itchy and then in some ways it can manifest as being painful, you know, and it's unsightly, you know, particularly in the summer when you want to be out in shorts and short sleeves, right? And it's a real problem, especially for children and adolescents. Of course. As you mentioned, it seems to be worse younger and gets a little bit better as we get older. Yeah. And you actually gave me some of your Opticam product to try because like many other people, I've been taking topical cortisones and, you know, even tar creams, you know, for a while to help with it. And uh, I got to tell you, this is unsolicited. Your stuff really works. It's helped to to know. Yeah. It's helped to clear up my eczema and I'm using it, you know, regularly when I get flare ups. Right. So I thought it'd be interesting to bring you on the show and and sort of talk about the science behind it and how it all works. Well, that's great. I think uh, that was the CB4 derma. That's right. Exactly. We know that it's psoriasis and eczema and and skin issues are obviously germane for Canadians. Let's talk a little bit about the sort of treatments that are currently available. Yeah. So, I mean, for the most part, I think you mentioned them. For eczema psoriasis, mild to moderate eczema psoriasis is typically treated by topical drugs, yeah. which are like creams or ointments, usually hydrocortisone or dermavate or some, some derivative of topical corticosteroid. Right. And while they're highly effective and can be highly effective, there's a couple of problems with them. Yep. Number one is they tend to work less over time. They Correct. need to switch between different products yep. or different types of topical steroids. The second problem is that they, they can thin the skin after a while. Yeah, and that, that's happened to me. Yeah, so you see the appearance of the skin changing. And that's reversible, but still it's a little bit disturbing because it doesn't look normal. The third problem with kids. Kids have limited surface area. So yep. when you have a large surface area with uh, eczema or psoriasis and you're applying a lot of topical corticosteroid, that can get absorbed through the skin. And it has some systemic effects, side effects that you don't necessarily want in children. So topical steroids on larger surface areas in children and adolescents, somewhat more of a concern, especially with chronic use, because of side effects. Yeah, and, you know, in my experience, you you tend to, like, slather on more than might otherwise be appropriate. You know, you're not supposed to use a lot of topical steroid, but if you're having a bad flare-up, I mean, I used to do it. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. And if it's really a bad flare-up or if it's consistent especially with plaque-like psoriasis. Yeah. You know, many people may see that ads from the U.S., especially there are what are called uh, biological drugs that are right. used systematic, uh, systemically to essentially control the disease. And those are those are big hammers. Yeah. Uh, so they have many side effects, but those are for really extreme cases. And even in those cases, the flare-ups are treated with topical steroids. Yeah. And I had this other cream that was totally different. It was a tar-based cream, which was acting as a sealant, right? Right. But I don't know if you've ever smelt the stuff. It's god-awful, right? Well, I'm hoping that with innovations that we have from the medical cannabinoid field, that those type of products will probably be uh, something that you and I will talk about, but maybe not anybody in the future. And not for our kids, right? (laughs) Exactly. exactly. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about how CBD, which is a constituent element of cannabis, can help to treat these sorts of things. Yeah, so I think, you know, on previous shows, we've talked about CBD and its anti-inflammatory effects. and 
Now, those anti-inflammatory effects are useful for systemic treatment for something like arthritis. So inflammation is a big part of it. Yep. But when you talk about things like psoriasis and eczema, those are inflammatory processes too. So the same mechanism of action, working on CB2 receptors on mast cells and immune cells, decreasing their activity, and then also decreasing some of the redness and irritation directly by the cytokine release. This is getting very scientific, but essentially broad spectrum anti-inflammatory effect of CBD is useful in controlling psoriasis and eczema, and actually in other conditions too, like say, for example, acne. Right. Uh, and so we have a product for acne as well that has slightly different formulations than what you tried, Yeah, but using the same anti-inflammatory effect. Now, for psoriasis and eczema, CBD is also shown to decrease keratocyte, which is the top layer of your skin, cell turnover. So psoriasis, you typically have too much turnover, that is yeah. too much production of those cells. And it's shown in basic uh, research that it, uh, CBD can decrease that. And we actually, with CB4 Derma, product that you tried, did a small clinical trial with our partner. And it showed over four weeks, decrease in redness, irritation, as main, main endpoints. Yep. And so we have some clinical data as well, and it's available, will be available on our website at optican.ca. Is it up now or will it be up in the future? It'll be up in about two weeks. Fantastic. Yeah, because yeah. I can tell you, I mean, like for me, it's anecdotal, right? Yeah. Like I can tell you it was red, it was itchy, yeah. put it on. And that went away like really quickly too, yeah. I have to say. Like yeah. it, it was surprising how quickly it worked. And, and for me as well, when I use it, it, my skin looks normal. It doesn't look like it's dry. It doesn't look like it's thinning or anything. It just right. returns to normal. Yeah, I know. It's impressive. So I used it sort of uh, results, right? Like like I had a flare up and I used it. Can this product or the CBD be used topically as a preventative measure? Yeah, or? so there's no reason why it could not. Okay. Um, so perfectly healthy with the concentrations that we use at CB4 Derma are relatively low. You know, again, not all topical CBD products are created equal. Pharmaceutical formulation to make sure that the actual active ingredients go into the skin and not just sit on top of the skin is very important. So as a result, we do have a formulation that does well, work well for that reason. And it's relatively safe to use on a chronic basis. Okay. So when you say relatively safe, like I presume there's no skin thinning? Like it's there not is the- no thinning of the skin like it is with, uh, with hydrocortisone and steroids. Okay. It doesn't get absorbed into the bloodstream in a, a high enough manner to make any difference. And even if it did, it, it's not dangerous in any way. Uh, it's not changing your uh, systemic metabolism or anything like that like cortisol does. Right. Okay. Yeah. Is there diminishing returns with the CBD? We haven't found that yet. Okay. So our clinical experience basically spans back about four years since when I was at Medrelief. Yep. At Medrelief, one of the things we did was we had a topical. We were the first company to offer a topical CBD product. And we surveyed our patients and said, you know, what are you using this for? Are you using it for pain control? Right. Because it can be used for pain control as well, topically. Or using it for skin conditions. And right. over half the patients were using it chronically for psoriasis and eczema and over a period of over two years. So we didn't see any diminishing returns. Okay, so it's interesting you raised that, you know, there's a portion of people that are using it that don't even have eczema. So I'm a bit of a gardener and I cultivate wild raspberries in my backyard. Okay. Wow. Now, one of the things about them is they are thornier and scratchier yeah. than your typical raspberry. And it's now, it's harvest season, like literally as we're doing this right now. Yeah. And I I don't know if you can tell, but like I'm, I get scratched up 
Would CBD be appropriate? Would your product be appropriate if just sort of like for topical itches and scratches and things like that? Yep, absolutely. CB4 Derma, the yeah. formulation yeah. you have, would be most appropriate for that. CB4 Clear that we have is probably because it's formulated with rosemary and tea tree oil, yeah. which is really to help dry up the skin, more useful for acne. Right. So CB4 Derma has chloral oatmeal, which is more soothing to the skin. Yeah. And it'll be more appropriate for something like what you just said, which is redness and irritation of the skin and psoriasis and eczema. I know we're talking about eczema and psoriasis today, but let's sort of go off the highway. We'll, yeah. we'll go on this turn off for sure. a second because yeah. you mentioned acne. Now, I'm not an acne guy, but yeah. I know there's lots of people, not just teens that are suffer from it. So we haven't talked about it. Let's talk about CBD for acne. Yeah. So, I mean, this is one of those things that we, you know, again, serendipitously found at MedRelief over time. And then we looked into the basic research behind it, and it appears that CBD does decrease sebaceous gland production, which is the oily glands in your skin. And it's got an antibacterial property, too. You know, it's quite an amazing molecule from that perspective. So that antibacterial property and sebaceous gland uh, suppression, and along with being an anti-inflammatory, which is a response you get in acne, uh, ends up making it a fairly decent anti-acne product. And for the first time, you'll have a non-benzoyl peroxide product. When benzoyl peroxide is very effective, for right? Me. But the problem with benzoyl peroxide is that in the summertime, if you use it in your face, it can react with the sun mm-hmm. and cause a reaction, a redness. And that's not the case with CB4 Clear or, or CBD products that are formulated for skin blemishes. Fantastic. Okay, so can you use CBD with traditional treatments or is there an issue with sort of... Topical CBD is quite safe to use with other ingredients or other products. There's no real drug interaction. Oh, unlike oral CBD. Now, we, on a yeah. previous show, we have uh, talked about CB4 relief or uh, soft gel capsules for systemic use. Those products can interact with other drugs, but not topical. I wouldn't worry about that. Okay. So THC is another element of cannabis. Does it have any therapeutic value for eczema or psoriasis? Technically speaking, yes, because THC does work on CB2 receptors like CBD. Yeah. CBD is very weak in the CBD receptor, but THC is stronger. It could have an anti-inflammatory effect as well. But overall, we think that CBD has more therapeutic potential for skin conditions than THC. THC is much better at controlling something uh, like nerve damage pain. Ah. And so THC in a topical formulation, well formulated, that can actually get the THC into the skin would be better for treating something like diabetic peripheral neuropathy, Mm. which is a big problem in uh, many diabetic patients, but less useful for actual skin conditions. But that isn't your product in any of them, right? No, 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 no. We focus more on how we can help people with skin conditions. Are there any risks to using CBD for eczema or psoriasis? Well, not that we know of. Some people can be hypersensitive to ingredients, so you have to be very careful on making sure you're not allergic to anything in any, any formulation. Right. Very low risk or low incidence of CBD reaction in the skin that we found or the data suggests. Health Canada does ask people to monitor for adverse drug reactions when we have products in the marketplace. Right. And we really haven't seen much come back in the way of problems with our patients. I would imagine if Health Canada is telling you there's issues, you're going to have to deal with it, right? So Absolutely. Uh, adverse drug reaction reporting is very important. It's called pharmacovigilance, and it's something that uh, I come from the pharmaceutical industry, we take very seriously. Happy to report that we haven't had many issues. Fantastic. Okay, so if people are interested in getting the topical product, how would they go about doing that? So because our medical products typically are only available through medical channels, they're not available at uh, typical retail dispensaries. 
what I would recommend for most people, the easiest is go to optican.ca. Yep. That's optican with two N's. Yep. Dot CA. And you can register as a patient and register for a clinic appointment. They'll do a quick assessment and get you a medical document. And then we can, uh, you can order right from the website and it'll be delivered to your home. Now, I know this isn't the case for the topicals, but there's a new way to get your products other than going to Optican, right? Right. So we're happy to report that we're having many new partners in the medical field. And uh, we just recently launched, as of yesterday and today, Shoppers Drug Mart. Fantastic. So Medical Cannabis by Shoppers is a very good partner for us and for many companies. They have national presence and some of our products are now available through that and we'll be providing more and more to our good partners at Medical Cannabis by Shoppers. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you. That was Umar Syed. For more information about his business, visit opticanwith2ends.ca. For great health and wellness interviews and articles, visit thetonic.ca. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss medical innovation and collaboration on The Tonic. If you're looking for premium natural products, choose New Roots Herbal, proudly Canadian and family-owned for over 35 years. What really sets them apart is their dedication to quality. They source only the highest quality ingredients and test each one in a state-of-the-art ISO-accredited lab. You get the purity and potency you expect. Available exclusively at fine health food stores. To learn more or find a store near you, visit NewRootsHerbal.com. Welcome back to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. Jefferson T. is VP of Medical and Scientific Affairs at Takeda Canada. Takeda Canada held an innovation challenge inviting health tech startups to submit applications to support enhanced patient care in rare disease conditions. Takeda wanted to find new thinking and companies that traditionally wouldn't be in a position to access big pharma research funding, and also to identify ways to bolster innovative solutions to support rare disease patient care. My second guest, Aaron Liebtag, co-founder and CEO of Pintavera Research, received some funding from Takeda. Pintavera is the home of Darwin, an AI engine that discovers high-value clinical information contained in electronic health records, physician notes, pathology reports, physician transcripts, and other digital sources. Welcome both to the show, gentlemen. How are you? Thank you, Jamie. Very good. How are you? I'm doing very well. Jefferson, tell me a little bit about Takeda. What's it all about? Well, Takeda is a global pharmaceutical company. We make uh, medicines to uh, treat predominantly four disease areas, namely cancer, uh, diseases of the gut, diseases of the brain, and what we would call rare diseases, that is diseases that affects uh, less than one in over 2,000 people. And we've been around for the last 240 years. And what makes us stand uh, with such a long history is really our focus uh, on patient needs and our investment in innovation. So as we can think about it, uh, you know, um, these days, most diseases don't have a cure. So we have to continuously involve, uh, invest in research so that we constantly bring new medicines to our patients. So in a way, uh, it's our way to contribute to the well-being of our society. How important is healthcare innovation to your business and our Canadian healthcare system? Healthcare innovation is critical, Jamie, to our business. When we think about the different diseases that patients are dealing with uh, these days, there is a huge unmet need. So from a business standpoint, there is a need to speed up the research process to bring these new solutions, these new medicines 
to really alleviate uh, patient suffering and also improve their outcomes. So we can only do that with healthcare innovation. So using new technologies, artificial intelligence, data analytics to speed up research. And it goes without saying that we cannot do it alone. As a business, we need to partner. We need to create partnership with academia, with biotech companies, with startup organizations to really bring those uh, new uh, medicines to our patients. I would imagine, you know, it's not just the time it takes to develop uh, new pharmaceutical products. It's also the expense. So I presume the innovation helps sort of streamline the cost as well. Absolutely. I think, uh, you know, especially with all the new technologies that we have, I think, uh, you know, time, time is the essence. If there's any sure. way that we can, you know, do things better, optimize our processes from a research and development perspective, this will only help from a cost perspective. So tell me about the innovation challenge. How did it work and perhaps some details? Yeah, absolutely, Jamie. So uh, this is something that is uh, very exciting and innovative that uh, we've launched uh, at the beginning of this year in January 2022. And when you think about it, Jamie, uh, there there are so many and so much innovations in Canada, whether we're talking about new digital technologies, machine learning, artificial intelligence, and so many companies and startups, uh, as well as universities out there that are behind all these different innovations. So Takeda invited all these companies to, uh, and, and also universities to submit how their technologies can help uh, solve uh, some of the healthcare problems out there that we're facing, uh, whether we're talking about diagnosing patients or how to provide better care for these patients, especially uh, in patients with rare diseases. So, uh, so we're happy uh, to, to launch that in January, and there was a winner that came out of that process, and overall we had uh, great traction across the country with over 20 uh, submissions. And really, the, the winner was awarded with the with the $200,000 prize that will support the research project that is geared towards uh, solving that healthcare issue that we're talking about. And we're really delighted to announce that Pentavia Research Group and Aaron, the, the CEO of, of the group, is the winner of this year's challenge. So we're really excited to partner with, uh, with Pentavir to really solve some of these key issues uh, with the healthcare of our patients. So let's hear a little bit about Pentavir, Aaron. Sure, well, first of all, you know, thank you Takeda, thank you Jefferson. We're equally excited about this partnership. Not only what, you know, we believe the impact will be for both organizations, but I think most importantly, the impact that it will have for, you know, so many children, adults who are suffering from rare diseases today in Canada and throughout the world. So Pentavir is an AI clinical discovery company. We've developed and validated a breakthrough engine that accelerates and unlocks knowledge from huge amounts of clinical information that exists but is not used to improve health outcomes. When we think about what's in our electronic health record, that documentation that we go through with our doctor, all of our diagnostics, all of our comorbidities, all other aspects of information that, you know, is out there, it's not used today at scale to be able to understand what's happening in the real world, to be able to understand when you talk about innovation, how knowledge can be used to accelerate discovery, to accelerate diagnosis. And we've developed technology that solves that particular problem. As I understand it, because I've had guests talk about, you know, sort of advances in medical technology. One of the issues 
particularly in Canada, is the siloing of information as between hospitals and doctors and pharmacies. Does your technology help sort of overcome that data gap? It absolutely does. And and it speaks to why we started Pentavir and what our process has been in terms of bringing the company to life. So Pentavir was started in result of a tragedy. So my partner and fellow co-founder is a technologist who spent over 20 years working for some of the largest financial service companies in the world, architecting global systems to intake data to essentially enable them to make money in real time. His mother went into the hospital with what should have been a routine procedure. And the fact that an important note around a medication that she needed to be put on post this procedure was buried and it was missed by her care team. And she didn't make it out of the hospital. Mm. And here's a technologist who, you know, understands data, understands how data can be used to enrich so many organizations. How can this happen? So what we did is we embedded ourselves at our expense for two years at a major hospital system here in Canada to learn firsthand about all of the complexity, the real world complexity around data silos, around how do you get access to data, around how do you think about privacy by design and incorporating those things that are just as important as the actual AI algorithms that extract the data to be able to unlock and unleash this type of information so that we can be in a position to partner with organizations like Takeda or to actually come up with real solutions on how we can accelerate, you know, early diagnosis of patients suffering from rare diseases. So I have to ask, you don't know, but I'm a former commercial litigator. One of the issues I think with the information and the siloing is the freedom of information and the privacy issues. So do you have a legal team there? Are you, are, is this some of the issues that you have to navigate in your process? So not only navigate, but understand them and build them into our process and not compromise on them. So right. a lot of AI technologies, we're an amazing technology. Look what these algorithms can do. But if it doesn't take into account privacy, governance, ethics, yep. almost built into your process, then you're not going to solve fundamentally the problem that we all need to be solved, right. which is unlock information to help improve the lives of Canadians with the best science available. So to that end, one of the first major decisions we made is we actually hired the former chief privacy officer at University Health Network, oh, wow. who is our okay. chief privacy officer. And through that network, we were able to really, A, understand privacy. Yep. Number one, demonstrate to the stakeholders that we needed to demonstrate to that we take it seriously and build that trust. And therefore, in many health systems across Canada, we are the first commercial AI engine that has been deployed, that has gained access, and has used that in the most responsible ways to unlock and unleash information and publish that information in the public domains around high-value clinical outcomes that can be used to improve care and save lives. So I would imagine with this technology, when you saw the Takeda competition, you were excited about the possibility of getting some funding there. Tell me about your thoughts when you heard about the competition. We were excited to work with Takeda. We've had the opportunity to have interactions with Takeda before this competition and really struck by the culture of the organization, the individuals of the organization. We talk, you know, we use words like innovation sometimes in the abstract. Right. But really, when you have individuals like Jefferson, like the folks we get to partner with, who really take a patient-centered approach around how do we think differently to accelerate 
drug discovery to accelerate access. We were just excited to be able to partner with Takeda. And then when we saw that the challenge was all around rare diseases, you know, here's a particular problem where it affects children. It takes over eight years sometimes to get these individuals properly diagnosed. There isn't a lot of data out there around how can we accelerate drug discovery, how can we accelerate access, and you listen to the stories of these individuals and just the ability to partner with an organization like Takeda to be able to, you know, make a dent in this huge global problem was something that we just couldn't pass up. You know, there are only a hundred, you know, there's hundreds of known treatments, but there are thousands of known diseases, and the majority of those thousands are rare. So an individual disease might be rare, but the epidemic of rare diseases is actually quite prolific. So let let me understand what your company does. You're not actually uh, leading research. You've created a tool that allows researchers to to sort of garner the information so that they can make decisions based on how they're going to approach or, or create medications and treatments. Is that right? We unlock knowledge that's buried in siloed, complex, unstructured clinical documentation at scale in a repeatable, reproducible, and verifiable way in order to enable research, enable to enable the identification of patients who, according to accepted guidelines, should be on a particular medication that science has already proven can improve their outcomes, but are not for a number of reasons. We unleash that knowledge, and that can support research, that can support policy decisions, it supports science. So we're one of the few AI companies in the clinical discovery space where data that has been unlocked through Darwin has been published in some of the most prestigious world conferences, whether it's lung cancer, whether it's, you know, uh, gastroenterology, and really excited around what this partnership is going to yield around rare diseases. Fantastic. So you're Toronto-based, right? Toronto-based. So how's that been the last little while? Like, what's it like to have an AI research company in Toronto? What has that meant for you? Toronto's an incredible ecosystem to birth a company. It's an incredible ecosystem in terms of being able to access talent. It can sometimes be a challenging ecosystem to really commercialize and scale and get the global credit for the great work that companies like Pentavir do and so many other companies do, right? There's, you know, a lot of AI in Silicon Valley, a lot of AI in Boston, a lot of AI in London. And, you know, how do we get to the front of that line and that acknowledgement based on breakthrough work and the impact that it has for patients? And that's one of the things that, you know, I applaud Takeda and the Innovation Challenge for really picking Canada and, you know, to spearhead this. And, you know, the work that we're going to be doing together will have global implications. You know, the first priority is really how do we improve, you know, solve for some of the infrastructure gaps that exist with patients who suffer for rare diseases in Canada. But then how can those algorithms and what is created together scale and really have impact around the world? Fantastic. Thank you both for coming on the show today. Thank you so much. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss how to understand incels on The Tonic. I'd like to give a shout out to our new sponsor, Omega Alpha. This company is 100% Canadian owned. Their team consists of allopathic and naturopathic doctors, nutritionists, researchers, and other scientific professionals, all led by their CEO, Dr. Gordon Chang. Formulations are created on their 40,000 square foot facility located in Toronto. 
Omega Alpha uses only the highest quality ingredients to manufacture the most efficacious yet price-friendly nutraceuticals. For more information about Omega Alpha, visit OmegaAlphaInc.com. Welcome back to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. Carlisle Jansen is a sex therapist and founder of Good For Her, Toronto's premier sexuality store and workshop center. She's the author of two books, including Sex Yourself, and you can find her educational videos and TED Talk at carlislejansen.com. She can be contacted directly at carlisle at goodforher.com. Hi, Carlisle. How are you doing? Hello. I'm well. I'm well. How are you? I'm doing well. So our discussion today was actually prompted by me. I think it's, it's sort of an interesting topic that we haven't covered, but I think it's actually an important one. And I'm going to sort of contextualize it. There's been a lot of, you know, gunplay in the United States and yeah. and men sort of young men in particular acting out. And a lot of them are motivated by alienation and loneliness. And that sometimes manifests in a concept called incel. And I think we should sort of explore that today and look about what that means and what the history of the term is and and where it all comes from, because there's a local aspect to it, isn't there? Yeah, for sure. So there's a woman called Alana. She doesn't like having her last name known, so she just goes by Alana. In 1997, she was a self-proclaimed late bloomer and was curious if there were other people like her who wanted support in finding love because she was struggling to form loving relationships. And so she started what she called the Involuntary Celibacy Project. And basically it was anyone of any gender who was lonely, had never had sex or hadn't had a relationship in a long time and was looking to find support from others online. Which is benign and a good thing, yeah. right? It's people who yeah, wanted to find relationships but were struggling in doing so because not everybody has a high EQ and not everybody looks like a model and not everybody's comfortable yeah. with others socially. So that's a good thing. And then it kind of went south, right? Well, it went in two directions. So there was one direction that was sort of true to the original vision called in-cell support, open to people of all genders, and everything was monitored, and if there was anything that was racist or misogynist or offensive, they would get rid of it. But then there was another faction, one called Love Shy. There wasn't any moderation. It was mostly men venting about women, blaming them for their lack of sex in their life. They were tended to then get connected to 4chan, which was an alt-right channel that I think was recently disbanded or there's been it's been in the news. Anyways, so unfortunately there were things happening like praising mass killers. Uh, One person was encouraged to commit murder. And so it was a lot of, there was sort of this camaraderie of people expressing together of being angry, um, entitled, there was misogyny. And so unfortunately, there was this side that kind of emerged and grew. And manifested in some pretty horrific acts, right? Right. So in the U.S., Elliot Roger was a 22-year-old who killed six people. I can't remember the year, but this was many years ago. And he killed a bunch of people. He turned a gun on himself afterwards. And the connection here to incel is that he had a 140-page document 
that he distributed talking about how he hated women and very much about his frustration about being virgin. And there were many people in the incel community who hailed him as a hero and even then came to Canada. So in 2018, many of us have heard of Alec Manassian and the van attack. And he posted on Facebook before he ran over 10 people with his van that the incel rebellion has already begun. All hail the Supreme Gentleman Elliot Roger. Hmm. And so there's now these events where people are, are kind of, you know, innocent other people, right, who have nothing to do with their sexual expression. They're, they're going out and expressing this frustration, and they're being hailed as heroes. And another hero who, who's been also hailed by this group is Mark Lapine, who many, many years ago, I can't remember, in Montreal, yep. killed 14 women in École Polytechnique because they were women, they were feminists in an engineering school. And that was our deadliest mass shooting in Canadian history. So it's, it's led to this violence, which not only on an individual level, but on a mass level is really quite tragic. What are some of the terms and, and sort of earmarks of somebody who believes this, I don't even know what to call it, system of belief? I, I, I don't even know what to call it. I think it's a belief. I think it's a, yeah, it's a belief that, that they're entitled to anger against what they consider sexually prolific men. They call them chads, C-H-A-D, chads. And women are called Stacys. I don't know where they got these names from. (laughs) Their belief is that feminism, the contraceptive pill, women's involvement in politics and empowerment has made women promiscuous, manipulative, and on top of that, taken away the power of men. So they have less power, and because of all of these factors, they're not having sex. And so this is where they vent their anger towards. Right. And I think it's a belief that they're intrinsically entitled to have sex with the women that they choose to have sex with, as opposed to, you know, forming a relationship or having a partner who actually wants to have sex with them, right? It's almost like a right to have sex in a perverse way. For sure. Right? Right. For sure. It's very much an entitlement and it's it's sort of men and boys who who potentially had a history of isolation, of rejection, for whatever reasons, and they turn to the internet and they want to make sense of their pain, they want to feel connected, they want to feel validated, and they get a sense of belonging from these groups. And there's this sense of personal failure that they haven't made it. They're not, you know, the men that, that the world tells them they're supposed to be. And this idea that women are sort of obligated to off, have sex with them, this sense of social entitlement, and that there's something wrong with the culture that, that allows women not to give it to them. I mean, this is really at the base of it. And so they feel that it's very unjust, that their looks, sometimes trauma, being bullied. Uh, Many of them have autism, which uh, Manassian turns out had, or conventionally unattractive, that that it's unfair that their romantic chances have been ruined, and they feel the sense of injustice and persecution as a result of that. And they claim that it's really painful and that women hate them, and as a result, women need to suffer. And that women don't realize that these men are loyal and honest and that they feel gratitude and they have honor and chivalry. And so they're feeling really hard done by that women aren't noticing them and that all these other men are getting 
attention and sex, which, of course, is partly a problem with our culture that says that if you have sex, you're a certain kind of man, right? And without right. a sexual relationship, there's something wrong with you. And so they're missing out on this and that, that this is very unfair. Yeah, and I, I think, you know, I'll get on my soapbox like I sometimes do. I think social media, if it's not a key factor, it, it's certainly a significant factor in perpetuating the belief system of this group because it's created an echo chamber where they all are, are in agreement, right? There's nobody on these sites who are telling them, hey, let's dial it back, or maybe there's another way, or maybe you're not right, or maybe there's another perspective. It's just everybody sort of clapping back and saying, yeah, you're right. Uh, For sure. You get validation. You feel like you're not alone. You feel like your perspective is accurate. For sure. Nobody's challenging them and they're commiserating with each other. And I think it just grows. And it's on social, it's also on these websites where they message each other. And then, of course, they're allying themselves also with, like, pickup artists and men's rights activists and who have this very negative view of feminists and feel like, you know, men are losing power and that women are shallow and that they deserve to have their right back. And sometimes they take that right back. So they'll brag about, like, assaulting somebody on transit by brushing up against them and getting an erection or putting their semen in food or, you know, like they sort of try and reclaim their power in these kinds of ways, which is really non-consensual, destructive, and, and doesn't really bring them their power back anyway. Okay, we don't have much time, unfortunately. I'm wondering if you can think of anything that can be done to stop this from perpetuating. I'm at a loss. Yeah. I mean, I think that we need to challenge anyone who feels entitlement around sex. You know, I think it's very much left over, especially for men, this idea that women used to be property, that we, you know, we couldn't get a credit card until I think the 70s without a, a man's permission. You know, many women even still, you know, feel like pleasure is about men and a duty to men. I think we need to address people's emotions, right? If people are feeling like lonely, left out, belittled, um, not given a chance, I think we need to validate those emotions. Yeah, that's hard. Yeah, that's tough. Yeah, when the world tells you that you should be having sex, when people are when the world is communicating that, that, you know, you're only a useful man, you know, in these kinds of ways, for sure. I think we need to really, rather than demonize these people, I think they need to find empathy and they need to find ways to address those emotions in more constructive ways. Yes, I agree. Not sure how we do it, but I agree. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for coming on the show today. Yes, always a pleasure. Nice to connect. Yep, that was Carlisle Jansen. For more information about Carlisle, visit carlislejansen.com. For articles written by Carlisle, visit thetonic.ca. We have to take a short break, but we'll be right back on The Tonic. The Tonic is brought to you by Purely Natural. Their liquid greens chlorophyll is the only line of soluble, grit-free, and great-tasting greens on the market. Liquid greens can easily be mixed with your favorite drink to provide a sustained natural boost of energy to help you get through your day. There's unflavored, which is great with orange juice. The mint flavor is cool and refreshing. Dark chocolate has all the health benefits of a salad, but with a great chocolate taste. And for that extra detox boost, try activated charcoal and mint. Enjoy the energy. Enjoy the detox. Enjoy the great taste. Purely natural liquid greens. The Big Carrot is a worker-owned natural food market that's been committed to local, organic, non-GMO, and sustainable food systems since 1983. They're a one-stop shop offering produce, grocery, bulk, body care, and holistic dispensary. The juice and smoothie bars and kitchens serve up hundreds of healthy dishes and drinks daily. 
Building community is at the core of their vision, which they deliver through education, outreach, and giving. They want everyone to share in the goodness they offer. Visit their website for more information at thebigcarrot.ca. Welcome back to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. In a recent study published in the journal Open Forum Infectious Diseases last month, data from 400,000 people who had been infected with COVID-19 and 1.6 million who had not found that adults over 50 who had had COVID-19 are 15% more likely to develop shingles within six months. And the risk grows to 21% for those who have been hospitalized with COVID-19. Adults over 50 who have had COVID-19 are more likely to experience a shingles outbreak, according to the new research. And with that in mind, we brought our friend, Dr. Christine Palme, back to the show to discuss vaccinations. She's a family doctor and runs a busy practice in Midtown Toronto. She has a particular interest in public education and speaks and writes on a range of topics with specific passion for immunization and women's care. Welcome back to the show, doctor. How are you? I'm very well and happy to be considered a friend, Jamie. What vaccination needs are you currently seeing in clinic? That's actually a great question because the tide has turned and as we redevelop a medical care system in a new version of normal that's ever evolving, I think I'll say I'm seeing three categories of patients. So the first being those who need to catch up who missed shots, who are due for shots, you know, who cut their fingers while discovering culinary extravagances (laughs) in their kitchen and then suddenly realized they needed their tetanus shots. So this should be more urgent. I need something now. Then I have the category of proactive patients who have ridden the primary care preventative healthcare wave. I think that was one of the silver linings of this pandemic, really opening up education and awareness. And they're coming in asking, What am I due for, you know, based on my risk factors, based on my age? And then, of course, the other proactive cohort are the travelers, you know, people who are uh, very brave and going to uh, sit nine hours at their airports. You know, they're coming in and asking very specific questions. And then the third category, I'd say, are, are routine immunizations. You know, I certainly tried my best to keep my clinic open for immunizations all throughout the pandemic. And that's an absolutely important point. You know, COVID brought so many tragic situations. And, you know, I always phrase it, it's exhausting to be reactive. We were trying to vaccinate ourselves out of a pandemic. So why not flip the equation and be as proactive as possible? So that second group of patients who come in and very eagerly want to know what immunizations are they due for or eligible for or what I think I would recommend, even if it's off-label, I really think that's a wonderful new perspective. I have lots of friends in the nutraceutical business, right? So they're the ones who produce all the vitamins and everything. And they're telling me that actually business is down. And they think it's because of sort of like a fatigue, that people are tired of thinking about their health and they're, they're almost ignoring it. Are you seeing that? You know what, Jamie? I'm not. Quite the opposite. I happened you know, to have a clinic open all throughout, uh, I call it the plague. Right, uh, so I was do I. really pushing patients not to forget about preventative medicine. But I think 
to be fair, I have a self-selecting group. I have patients that, you know, respond to me. Right. And if they don't, they leave. <laughs> but I think overall, we tend to focus on, you know, a small cohort of patients who aren't interested necessarily in preventative health care, whether that be immunizations, et cetera. And there is certainly a fatigue. There's a fatigue amongst healthcare providers. But I think that the reality is, is that we can't forget those patients that are willing to go. I've had people who have let their health fall by the wayside, certainly, but I've had more patients that have reframed and, you know, maybe not during uh, COVID, but are now emerging and saying, wait a minute, the past two and a half years have been difficult. I have to tidy up. Yep. So what does the province recommend with respect to routine vaccinations then? Yeah, so I, I'm, I'm going to speak broadly because we can take multiple levels of recommendations. So Ontario has a standard immunization schedule that goes from, cre- you know, from the time of infancy and then stops at about 16, they have this official chart. But for adult immunizations, let's focus on sort of the over 50 cohort. Some routine vaccinations that are recommended, of course, tetanus is every 10 years. So I include that always. But if you're really thinking about age-related risks, if I were to pick three, I'd probably say top of mind would be your annual influenza shot. Last year, because of masking, there was a drop in influenza. But when they lifted restrictions, we had a late surge in cases. We had a late influenza season. I had several patients who uh, didn't get the vaccine because they assumed social distancing would be uh, preventative, you know, really got quite sick and were quite eager to know when our uh, annual influenza vaccine will come out for this year and it's October. Mm-hmm. The second would be vaccines against shingles. So you so astutely pointed out a study that basically outlined patients who had contracted COVID and particularly patients who contracted severe COVID were more at risk to develop shingles. And I'm going to add, in some of the really sick COVID cases, shingles was also more severe. Hmm. So there's no doubt that shingles is related to immune status. The biggest risk factor for developing a shingles outbreak is age. And I still don't have a solution for aging, but at 50, NASI, and we all know NASI, they recognize that from a statistically significant perspective, our immunity... Uh, wanes, hence a recommendation just based on age. But the other piece of the puzzle and the other equation is looking at immune status in general. So people who have an assault on their immune system, whether that's physical, psychological, a lack of chronic disease management, and COVID pretty much, you know, was the cause of those three factors in itself, their immune system wanes and then shingles re-erupts. So shingles is a re-eruption of a dormant chickenpox virus that right. lives in your sensory roots. And when your immune system drops, for whatever reason, it rears its ugly head at the most inopportune time. So there's no doubt from an age perspective, shingles is recommended. But I think even from a timely perspective now, you know, due to lack of chronic disease management, the stress of COVID, I'm, I'm really harnessing that as another reason to recommend that people look into getting their shingle shot. And the third shot I would recommend is pneumococcal vaccine. Uh, We are about to update our guidelines. We all know that everything evolves, and it's quite exciting. We have some new vaccine options to protect our patients at risk. So those would be sort of the top of mind, but then, of course, you've got to look at your standard immunization, hepatitis B, if you're traveling finally, Mm -hmm. hepatitis A, cholera. You know, there's... um, There's age-related, there's standard schedules, and then there's common-sense vaccines based on risk. Okay, so my family has been making fun of me because (laughs) they think I have a preoccupation with monkeypox, 
and that I'm taking it more seriously than I should. I have you on the show. So let's discuss monkeypox. You know, like where do you see it in terms of health risks for our listeners? And, you know, what's actually what actually can they do and what actually can't they do based on what the province is, is now mandating? That's an excellent question. And, and certainly, you know, COVID was stealing the line for a while. So it was actually a bit of a sigh of relief to talk, to some, talk about something differently. And I don't think yep. you're overreacting. It's always important to be educated and understand risks. So at present, guidelines would say that a person is eligible for a monkeypox vaccine based on very strict criteria. Public Health will update their website. They do so daily. I just logged on and the criteria haven't changed. But at present, the vaccine is being accessed through public health clinics for men who identify as gay or bisexual. And then there's a criteria of risk factors based on activities. Mm-hmm. That may change, right? But we're now seeing the risk within that patient population. So I, I strongly encourage um, you know, medical professionals who are listening, um, you know, viewers who identify with that population to reach out to public health talk about it. I certainly reached out to my patients who I thought were at risk, and that vaccine can be accessed at present through public health clinics. What happens next week? I don't know. And I certainly don't think being educated and being informed, particularly about prevention, I don't think that's overkill at the best of times, Jamie. I, I say that it's, it's good practice and good medicine. Thank you. Let's clear up another point that I've heard of, which may or may not be correct, which is mm-hmm. many of us of a certain age got smallpox vaccines back in the day. And I know mm-hmm. that not everybody has them anymore or very few or nobody has them after a certain age. But that if you've had a smallpox vaccine, that offers some protection from monkeypox. Is that fact or fiction? It's not. It's neither. We don't know. All right, okay. there is, this is a new emerging field. The vaccine that we have right now is a smallpox vaccine, so it's not even monkeypox specific. Okay. So studies are ongoing, and we'll have more data as things evolve. We don't know, but it wouldn't preclude if you fall into that risk category that I defined, I would still reach out and determine your eligibility. And it certainly doesn't mean that you're scot-free. You know, provide, you know, certainly if you think that you have a monkeypox situation, reach out to your healthcare provider, self-isolate, access public health, regardless if you've had a smallpox vaccine or not. You know, I certainly have international patients and who did receive a smallpox vaccine. They do things differently, as we all know, in different parts of the world. Right. And I still have that same discussion if I feel the patient is at risk. Okay, time for one last quick question vis-a-vis monkeypox. Are there any statements on preventative measures? Like eventually there came to be a protocol on how to best avoid COVID. Is there anything that's being formulated with respect to monkeypox that that we can share? Absolutely. And to be honest, Toronto Public Health has a wonderful summary. There's actually an entire page talking about prevention. So safe sex is top of mind, good hand hygiene. You know, if you think that you potentially have monkeypox, self-isolate, you know, don't go near people, reach out, get guidance from public health, stay home if you're sick. Basic, basic um, suggestions that, to be honest, aside from the sexual activity point, would relate to any virus. But I strongly encourage viewers, out of all the resources that I've referenced, for my own research and for patients, Toronto Public Health's website is the most up-to-date and has what I think to be the most practical information. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Always a pleasure to be here. Thanks to all my wonderful guests, Umar Syed, Jefferson T., Aaron Liebtag, Carlisle Jansen, and Dr. Christine Palme. And thank you all for listening to The Tonic. 
You can listen or download this episode as a podcast with full show notes, contact information for our guests, and links at thetonic.ca. To find out more about the show, you can always follow us at It's The Tonic on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. For great articles written by amazing health and wellness writers, be sure to pick up your copy of The Tonic magazine. The July-August issue is available free on racks at over 100 locations across the GTA and delivered with the Globe and Mail to home subscribers in Toronto, west of Victoria Park. Or you can visit our new website, thetonic.ca. If you're interested in providing feedback or suggesting topics for the show, you can email me at jamie at thetonic.ca. On our next show, we'll discuss the health and wellness issues that are important to you. Until then, this is Jamie Busson wishing you a healthy and happy week. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.